difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here again with Keith Phipps and Tasha Robinson. Vox film critic and culture reporter extraordinaire Alyssa Wilkinson joins us again. Hello, Alyssa. Howdy. And our producer and co-host Genevieve Kosky will be back on mic for our next pairing. In our last episode, we slogged through the merciless desert heat and wind of the Oregon Trail in 1845 with Kelly Reichert's Meek's Cutoff. This week, we're going even further back in 19th century Oregon for First Cow, Reichert's offbeat comedy drama about friendship, immigration, and fried treats in the Oregon Territory in 1820. John McGarrow stars as Otis Cookie Figowitz, a soft-spoken cook who makes whatever food he can wrangle up for the gruff fur trappers who bring him along on hunts. One day, Cookie runs into King Lu, a Chinese immigrant who's on the run for killing a Russian man. Played by Orion Lee, Lu immediately develops a kinship with Cookie, and the two eventually go into business together. Using the milk they secretly purloin from a prized cow owned by Chief Factor, a wealthy landowner played by Toby Jones, Cookie makes delicious fried treats called oily cakes. The oily cakes are a huge hit, but keeping up with the man means taking on more risk, and the consequences of getting caught, especially for Lou, are extremely high. We'll talk about this strange, beguiling little movie after the break. What's your name? King Lou. They call me Cookie. My mother died when I was born. And then my father died. I never stopped moving. It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for a poor man to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. Same place for cows. Well, it's no place for a white man either. I sense opportunity here. Okay, so we always like to talk about you know what everyone thought of the movie first, and so let's start with you, Alyssa. What did you think of First Cow? I really went into First Cow very primed to love it because I've never not loved a Kelly Reichert movie, and I think I saw it last fall at the New York Film Festival back when back when that was a thing, and <laughs> um, of course, again, like Kelly likes to make these very quiet films that you really have to work to keep up with, I think it's easy to float away during, <laughs> during one of her films. And so I knew that going in. And then I resaw it earlier this year, you know, before it was going to come out in theaters, which it did very briefly. And both times I loved it. There's a couple reasons for that. One is I really like movies about friendship. I feel like there are fewer of those out there in the world than I would like. And I also really love movies about cooking. And there are definitely fewer of those in the world than I would like. And this one does it in a really, really, I guess, physical way. Like I really wanted to go make oily cakes. But I loved how you you watch them do every step of the baking process. You don't just sort of see the end step with the oily cakes. So yeah, and then I, I found that it also rewarded a rewatch, um, because once you know what's going to happen, you can kind of see the quote-unquote breadcrumbs <laughs> that she's leaving along the path. So this is definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. Keith, what about you? 
Oh, I was looking forward to seeing this in theaters when uh, from the first time I saw a trailer for it, mm-hmm. and then I never got to see it in theaters. I, I understand you did briefly, though. I, you, you got to see it during its brief run, Scott. But, yes, um, I did. It was the last movie that I saw in a theater. Um, and in fact, I, I saw it because the New York Times is doing a, a piece about seeing movies for the last time, basically, and who are these crazy <laughs> people who are going to the movies while this pandemic's going on. And so and so I, I, I went there and I talked to one person and then I watched it. But uh, what, what, what did you think? No, I thought it was terrific, and it is, you know, as you put it, it is, it is uh, more of a comedy than you would uh, might expect, and not to get ahead of ourselves, certainly more of a comedy than Meek's cutoff, but, you know, it's very sweet. I mean, I love, I love the, uh, to echo Alyssa, but I love the way it focuses on this initially unlikely, but then very deep and real friendship between these two people who ostensibly had nothing in common, um, and yet find they have uh, everything in common, particularly in this setting that once, in which neither of them fit in. They're a pair of misfits for different reasons. And again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but uh, they don't necessarily meet the best ending. But during their partnership, they find ways that they have different approaches to the world and, and talents that complement each other. And, and uh, I, I loved a lot aspect of it. I loved also the um, athletic means cut off uh, the just sort of the the attention to detail of the period. Uh, I'm a big stickler for that, and uh, and I love you know getting to revisit a time a time and place that I know nothing about or don't know enough about or, or more to the point with this film have no idea what the day you know what day-to-day existence might be like at this period in history in Oregon so um, you know it's terrific to kind of get immersed in that world as well and also um, I love the fight scene I love the, the, the bar fight was, uh, was uh, uh, you know, a different I, I think uh, this is probably more of a re- re- closer to revisionist western than, than Meeks Cutoff and, and that sort of take on that western staple was uh, was delightful Tasha what about you? I guess to mirror uh, directly what Alyssa said, I went into this movie not expecting to love it because I've never loved a Kelly Reichert film. (laughs) And for some reason, this was the one. I really think that it's because, to some degree, uh, it's because of that opening. It's so demonstrably the work of the same filmmaker you know it's it's slow and immersive and and thoughtful and not in a hurry and silent as this woman discovers a couple of skeletons and then we uh, kind of we go back in time to see where they came from so you've got that hanging over the entire movie as just like a portent a piece of dread like a piece of drama that feels in some ways bigger and more final than anything that happens in say meek's cutoff but i think the sense of humor uh helps her films tend to be they're a little miserableist but even more so than that they're just very straight-faced they're very straightforward and the film's humor here is so small and so wry and so straight-faced in that same kind of way but it's still present and to me it gives this movie a warmth that for me her other films just don't have I, I think it's also just compelling. I, I think the stakes are interesting. I think the characters are interesting. I think the setting is interesting. And then it's got all of the things that I already really liked about Meek's cutoff in terms of the precision of the costuming and the production design and detail and uh, the camera placement and use. I just, this is easily my favorite Kelly Record movie in a walk. Well, I, I would, <laughs> I, I would not say that. Scott is not even satisfied when I like a film That's, he likes well, no, because he, he well, feels I like about, it in the wrong way. It's all inevitable. These, all these other films, which are amazing. Um, and, and, it's and, inevitable. And, and the thing is like, I mean, she has shown a sense of humor. I mean, River, River of Grass has got plenty of laughs. And, and, and there's a lot of, you know, the film this is kind of closest to in a lot of ways is, uh, even though we're doing Meek's Cut Off, is Old Joy because that also 
focuses on you know a friendship between grown men but you know the, the big and important distinction between this movie and old joy is that old joy is about friends who have been who have known each other for a long time for too long really and have kind of fallen out of touch and have lost their ability to really kind of communicate with each other um, as they once did and, and here it's about you know the beginning of a friendship and um, and the development of a friendship and and um, you know so there's kind of a different feel to each one i mean the, there's a more there's a bittersweet quality to old joy there's some built-in sort of difficulties in that relationship that are not present here and uh maybe that accounts for some of the brightness you know uh, of these two guys who who really don't fit in i mean obviously king lose on the run and so he's totally isolated but you know cookie definitely is not one of the one of the guys <laughs> the fur trappers barely tolerate him just because he can deliver some kind of sustenance to them because they probably are they are they're much more competent at at hunting than they are at, at probably anything else um with their time uh and so so it was nice to see them to come together and, and like Alyssa, i really i do like movies about friendship i really like movies about cooking and reichert's you know strong detail-oriented approach to period i mean it just makes every difference in every scene <laughs> you know I mean, and it's a thing where you do appreciate the film more on repeat viewings because your eye uh, catches different things like you just you know I, I appreciate the second time you know what an interesting kind of multi-ethnic view of this period in this place it was because i think you know maybe it's a, maybe it's a west coast vibe or something or something you know or west or, or you know western end of the country vibe as opposed to other stories of this period which we tend to get you know uh, more about the east or not not as far west and and it's just i don't know it's interesting to see kind of that culture clash taking place in, the, in that market and it's it's not really heavily underlined but it's there you know and it's uh you know and, and i think when you get those details right you know the, the rest of the movie tends to follow so i i wanted to talk a little bit again i mean we I talk about the approach to period i mean what is it i mean uh, how would you describe you know the style of the film and its approach to the period i mean one thing that struck me thinking about this one in relation to meek's cutoff both period films is that again she's kind of thinking about hierarchies that are like built into or that people try to build into civilizations that don't really hold up when you get them across the country in a much different situation like you have these ideas about you know race and about gender and all these things and she does it very gently but there's that scene when they have the clafouti uh, and they're in the house and everyone's Mm -hmm. kind of talking over one another and trying to battle their way into position and one thing that Kelly, I think, has talked about with this one is that it's kind of a movie about what happens when capitalism encounters nature. And that was very much something that was happening like right at this time all over the place because of people moving west and trying to seek their fortune and like very motivated by property and land and money. And I think that making that essential point of this movie... It takes some of the valorization a little bit out of the frontier thing and just sort of says like, yeah, people were looking for a different way of life. And as always, they got in their own way at times or they had the potential to get in their own way. So I think that's a really un-Hollywood, it's obviously a very un-Hollywood way to look at this period of time in this place, Um, but it's a very effective one. And I also think that the idea that this is the first cow who's appeared in this settlement is 
you know, it's not just like the kind of hook to hang the whole movie on, but it's a, it's very funny. I find cows very funny. I think I cracked <laughs> up when ca- the cow was like floating down the barge on the river the first time we saw it. That I think is just a really hilarious image, which probably says a lot about what my sense of humor yeah. is. <laughs> I, I think to tag off something you were saying, uh, Alyssa, also another way it kind of uh, uh, deflates ideas of, of the frontier and, and the possibilities was when you get there, the people who actually have the money and can buy things are already there and they're already mm-hmm. setting up their own systems of control and maybe if you're clever, you can find ways around them. But more likely than not, you're just going to get in. You're, you're just going to end up, uh, uh, you know, serving the rich people. It's also just a very raw look at history. Both this and Meeks Karaf, people are just filthy. You know, it, it's not a glamorization um, or a, like a lionizing of history. This is not a past where people walk around uh, with you know, hairdressers and uh, makeup artists. This is not a place where women wake up in the morning with their false eyelashes on and their their blush perfectly in place. This is a place where everybody is grubby and all of the clothing looks like it was sewn together out of like whatever scraps people could afford, often in the roughest way possible. Everything looks a little used and and more than a little dingy. Places where people spend a lot of time walking are uh, muddy and, and packed down cleaning a house means sweeping some of the leaves off of the dirt floor that's partially made out of leaves and straw. You know, there's just, there's no glamour to this. The film's plot is just essentially about kind of trying to like hack out a living in a place where everything has to be earned in some way. You know, whether it's, you have the freedom to take wood that's just like lying around for free and make yourself a house on land that's just lying around for free, but it all has to come at the expense of work and you have the ability to make something and sell it, but it comes at the expense of, uh, of theft or, or compromise or like giving up what resources you have. There's just <sighs> Westerns tend to be about fighting for, uh, for peace, usually with guns. And here it's about fighting, not just for survival, but for, for dignity and some sort of place in the world and something that belongs to you. And everything's sort of stacked against you. I mean, there's a metaphor here, I think, and you see this, I think, a lot in films about cooking is art. You know, I mean, it's a, this is a, in Cookie, who is, who's a legitimate artistic talent, has a sensibility, is, you know, and you can see it the way he applies the honey to the oily cakes and the that sort of pattern. I mean, like the plating aspects of it, the art of cooking. I mean, that stuff matters to him. Like the aesthetics of it matter to him in a way that that is so almost comically opposed to the world that they're in where everything is very rough and tumble and nobody really cares about where what anything is like. He's an actual artist and he's kind of ground up in the, in the system. Um, and so there's a little bit of an indie film quality to it. There's also kind of, you know, I talked a little bit in uh, in Meek's Cutoff about the Jim Jarmusch connection, and there's so much of Dead Man in this movie Mm -hmm. and in Meek's Cutoff, but like just this type of personality, these these two men who just don't belong in a world that is just so rough and so built to chew them up and (laughs) spit them out. Um, So there's that that part of it too. Uh, And there's comedy. I mean, that's the other thing too. I mean, this is a very... It's a funny movie, and it's and it's unexpected, and it's so it's so strange. I mean, it feels like a it, also like a short story that's been extended into her longest film. Probably she'd done a film over two hours. But this is like her first two hour movie, I think. Yeah, so um, it's an, it's very interesting. There's a version of this story that you could probably tell in twenty minutes or something like that. Um, <laughs> but but she 
draws it out and maybe it's slightly too much in the first act. I mean, it, it really takes quite a bit of time for us just to get to the scheme of making these, these cakes and selling them. That takes a, almost half of, uh, you know, not half of the film, but a pretty good chunk of the film to kind of get to that place. But she gives you a lot of other things to, to look at and to think about in the meantime. I missed Stephen Malkmus as the fiddler. Uh, I don't know if he's credited in the credits or not, but Wikipedia lists uh, Stephen Malkmus as uh, playing the fiddler. I missed the fact that oh uh, the man standing in the doorway with a uh, crow on his shoulder uh, is René Abergenois. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's his last film role, isn't it? It is. Yeah, he'd oh, been in, wow. Yeah, he'd been certain women before this, so apparently they liked working together. But yeah, I, I and of course there's a nice little connection to McCabe and Mrs. Miller, another film we consider pairing this one with. Yeah, we gotta be, we gotta get to it. The last, the only is, is the only Altman we've paired something with the one we have our biggest fight over. Mash. Do we? Do Mash. We have another, yeah. Do we have another Altman? Do we have another Altman? No, I don't pairing? think we have. Yeah, we got to Well, you know, they don't. Something there's not that many Altman esque movies being made right now, so it's it's kind of hard to find a connection sometimes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we're going to have to find some O.C. and Stiggs. Got to bring O.C. and Stiggs in here. <laughs> His best work. Um, I'd like to what you said. I mean, it is it is actually based on a, a short story or a novella or something by John Raymond, who Kelly's worked with a lot. And I think, you know, because it's a film about friendship, I was just thinking about that again and these sort of long creative collaborations that pop up in American, well, in, in film generally, but I'm, I'm always interested in how people work together and how you kind of see their interests melding. And I just think it's interesting that this one is based on I, one of his earliest stories. And th- I think it's one of the first ones she even read of his before she started working with him and before they made Old Joy. So that's just fun to me that they're here they are making a movie about a creative partnership of sorts um, based on a really old collaboration. So the words uh, creative partnership and friendship keep coming up over and over. Is there a world where this is a gay romance? You know, we're, we're not given a lot to go on in that department. You know, there's not a lot of, of physical affection. We don't really see what their sleeping arrangements are. But you have a couple of men who code as softer and much more sensitive um, and like much more caring about interior decoration than anybody else in this movie. Uh, but more importantly, you just, you have a, a pair of men who look at each other and recognize each, like recognize something in each other and reach out to each other and make a home together. And I, like, I don't know whether people are holding this forth as a kind of a, a quietly coded gay romance. I don't know if she said anything about it. But I feel like we've got to bring up the possibility, yeah? I mean, there's two characters who mean more to each other than to anyone else in the world, if, if nothing else. I don't know if we necessarily want to say, you know, between scenes, what's going on. Or I don't even know if it's a tale of repression necessarily, but just that the closeness of that bond itself makes it homosocial, if, if not, you know, an actual gay story. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it would seem, of course, like another can of worms for that to be another sort of thing theme or idea that she would put in there explicitly and you wonder about like how it seems like they're you know when you're they're in a situation where they they're bonded by the need to survive that almost any other consideration like the pursuit of happiness for example is not really anything that they have the luxury to think about yet because they're living hand to mouth you know they're trying to expand i mean i think lou has kind of a business sense uh, the cookie doesn't have so they complement each other in that way 
Um, but they never get to a point where they can consider themselves stable enough to think about anything else than, than surviving the day and continuing to try to, you know, expand and make this scheme work for as long as they can make it work. There's really two people who have decided their fortunes are tied together and their lives are tied together. Though It's like right away that they decide that too. Mm-hmm. That's a huge thing for Riker to have to pull off and for these actors as well is to convince you right away of the, the bond that develops between them and of Cookie wanting to help Lou and Lou accepting Cookie's help because, because he certainly has reason to feel like this is as a hostile place. And, you know, they all pull it off together. It, it, it makes sense from the start that they would have this spark right away. Love at first sight, perhaps. I mean... I always wondered if there was a like a tinge of homoerotic overtone in the fact that when they meet, uh, King Lou is naked. I mean, there mm-hmm. is when we get into connections. I really want to talk about Kelly Reichert and vulnerability as a major theme stretching through her works. But in this case, King Lou comes to him literally with nothing, including without a stitch of clothing on his back, and. The connection between them is forged by the fact that Cookie, like, uh, immediately, without thinking about it, reaches out and provides for him. I suppose you could say there's a connection here between this and Beak's Cutoff with just, like, his first thought is, let's give this man, man a blanket, which we also see with uh, with the <laughs> native captive. But he literally clothes him. He puts food in his mouth. He gives him a place to sleep. And the connection there may be just something as simple as like he's soft hearted and doesn't want to see somebody like out there as vulnerable as King Lou is. But I think the bond is kind of struck by the fact that that King Lou recognizes that here's somebody who is capable of caring about people other than himself, which is maybe not something we see a ton of out on the frontier, certainly not something we see a ton of out on the frontier in this movie. Right. And there are almost no women in this movie to it's a very small number so you're you're in kind of an area of like hmm, probably vying for some kind of hyper masculinity and these are men who don't seem interested in that at all yeah that's a quality you would recognize and at the same time they're forming a business partnership it's really not just a friendship it's very much like a you know you have a product i think we can make some money off of this you know let's do this and it and it works and it's it's exciting on that level too i, I think when you fantasize about uh you know different film genres and such you kind of imagine where you would fit into it it's like watching this movie and watching cookie being bullied by all those uh tough guys i realized oh okay that's that's how i fit into the old west this is uh let's <laughs> be up there i yeah. i also would have no idea how to make food out of no food while lost in the forest uh, with a bunch of, of bullies. I mean, I to some degree, I wondered, like, I knew what this movie was about. I knew they weren't going to, like, bash King Lou over the head and eat him. But I actually wondered if that was meant to be felt as a bit of a threat. It's just like, here's a foreigner. Here's an outsider. We have no connection to him. We have no reason to be beholden to him. We're out in the middle of nowhere and we're starving. Like, is that the first thing that would go through their mind? Hey, I mean, certainly it seems like Cookie's decision to not let anybody in on King Lou's existence doesn't necessarily just come from, well, here's another mouth to feed, or here's here's a stranger, we owe nothing. There's a definite fear there of like what these violent men he's with are, are going to do. Right. Well, so there's, there's a lot more to talk about with First Cow, but uh, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Meek's Cutoff and First Cow. 
I see something in this land I haven't seen before. Pretty much everywhere has been touched by now. But this is still new. More nameless things around here than you can shake an elet. Doesn't seem new to me. Seems old. Everything's old if you look at it that way. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Tasha, why don't you get us started? Well, as I said, I think one of the things that these, these two films, and really all of Rickard's films in general, have in common is that they're exploring vulnerability. The difficulty of vulnerability, the difficulty of putting yourself in somebody's hands. And it it takes a lot of different forms in her different movies. In Wendy and Lucy, you have somebody who's impoverished and stuck in a place she doesn't want to be and has a dependent that she needs to worry about. And like her entire life is vulnerability. In certain women, it's more of an emotional vulnerability as somebody opens up to feelings that she's not sure what to do with and puts them in the hands of the woman that she's attracted to and that feels rebuffed as a result. As I said, in First Cow, we get to see King Lou starting out naked and alone and chased in the woods. Uh, there are men after him. He He has nothing. He has nowhere to go. And we see somebody take him in and help him. But the two of them in general are just are very vulnerable. They don't have a great way to go about supporting themselves. They're kind of uh, living on the edge on other people's sufferance. And eventually we see that just the fact that they don't have and wield guns makes a huge difference in the survivability of, of just existence for them. In Meek's Cutoff, we have a group of people who are vulnerable to manipulation. They're vulnerable to the elements. They're vulnerable to the strictures that their own religion has put on them in terms of what their relationships can be like, what they can say and think and wear and do. And it's it's just a question of like whose hands they're in, who they're making themselves vulnerable to, and who's vulnerable to them. You know, the the native who falls into their hands and and becomes a slave to them is also very vulnerable, even while he has a power over them that they don't know how to negotiate. So I, I just think that it's interesting that it seems like this is just something that Reichert is fundamentally interested in exploring the problems of being emotionally naked in front of other people, as much as the problems being physically naked in front of other people, and the degree to which your calculus towards everything in the world changes when you don't come from means and you, you don't have means in the situation that you're in. Yeah, that's a true. I mean, to add to that point, to add another, Riker film, I mean, Old Joy is about that too, to an extent that it's the wedge that's become between the friends in that movie is largely about money and lifestyle and that sort of thing. You have one friend who's who's embracing a much more comparatively bourgeois lifestyle with the wife and a, a, either a kid or a kid on the way, I think, if I remember, it's been a while. And then you have the Will Oldham character in that who is, uh, you know, still kind of the guy that he remembered from college who just doesn't really have a lot of things together. But he's also, you know, there's something more authentic about him or at least marked as authentic about him because he's kind of still his towny self. And, and, um, you know, there's that kind of power dynamic between them has changed in a significant way. So, yeah, I I think that's a pretty good observation with um, these films about it. it. You know, vulnerability is key and it and it kind of feeds into a 
theme that is present in both films, which is masculinity, because there's such a strong contrast between the burly fur trapper types in um, First Cow and then and then your Bruce Greenwood's character in Meek's Cutoff and and um, you know what is expected from a man of that period and what it's like to not be that person, you know, to be um, someone who comes into this terrain from, a, I guess, a softer or more vulnerable place. Um, uh, and that's, that's an interesting thing to have in a Western. I mean, that's the, you know, cause really most of the time you do get the meek types. Uh, those are common types in Westerns. It's uncommon to get your cookie types. And so I think it, this is her chance that, uh, you know, this is Reichert's chance to seize the opportunity and to, to show us a different type of character, different type of characters um, in First Cow than you would uh, typically see in a Western. I'm reminded a bit of when we did uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, we talked a bit about that essay I wrote about the weird masculinity of that movie and how mm-hmm. Walter Houston's character is kind of the masculine king of the film because of age and experience and knowledge and how he uses it, as opposed to any kind of like physical prowess or ability with his fists or weaponry. I think we're seeing a lot of that same thing here, like to some degree here in First Cow, at least. There's an actual power in knowing how to cook. There's a weird, both like financial and cultural power, just in knowing how to put eggs and flour and and milk and sugar together in the right order for the right amount of time. And it's a neat little thing to see the, you know, the head of the colony coming to this extremely soft-spoken, mild man and kind of tap into his expertise with interest and give him sort of a space to be like the the strong and knowledgeable one, not just in the relationship that he's formed with this more ambitious and forward moving guy, but within the entire fort, you know, he's just he's a man who knows something nobody else knows and can do something nobody else can do. And it gives him a tiny amount of power. And yet it's also a heist movie. Yeah. <laughs> the smallest heist the smallest heist possible and uh-huh. but but you're right it, it's like a typical heist movie in that uh you know in the end they go back for one last job and it's the job that upends them and it's because they got greedy you know if they if they just if they just let it go a little bit earlier they all would have worked out i like it and i like how <laughs> when they're it's another you know I mean, the film is full of good bits you know good comedy and and i I like that the (laughs) signal that they originally developed for like the owl sound or whatever whatever sound that that lou is supposed to be making as a warning uh, from his lookout spot just doesn't play what does play is him actually you know falling out of the tree (laughs) uh uh, it's good stuff Uh, yeah as a heist film it is also the most bare bones uh heist plot you can imagine i (laughs) you're the lookout i steal the (laughs) So I steal the milk. <laughs> I walk up to the cow. I steal the milk. Yeah. The fact that he talks to the cow so is a nice sweet. touch. It's the so fact funny. that it becomes yeah. like, we're going to have gossip times. Uh, you know, I, I got to catch you up on how everything went since the last time I milked you. It's very sweet. And the cow and the cow loves it. The cow like nearly gives the game away by like really kind of snuggling up to him <laughs> when Chief Factor shows the captain and everybody his amazing cow that isn't giving any milk. Like the cow is just, 
recognizes Cookie and is kind of like it's a very good it's a great part it's, it's a great friend. animal performance uh, you guys are all wrong this is a noir movie the cow is the, the femme fatale you know the cow is trying to lure Cookie away uh, to help deal with her her owner who's uh, she doesn't like nearly as much and but she just she can't control herself and in the the tragic moment where the two of them meet like she gives him away in front of uh, in front of her her rotten owner the postman always moves twice yeah. <laughs> it's an utter delight right it's an utter delight oh no uh, uh no. so so Alyssa, there was you know one of the things we talked about with meek's cutoff and with here uh, this movie is reichert's attention to certain period detail and, and kind of like the the handmade i guess aesthetic that she brings to these movies uh well, could you talk about that a little bit yeah i think it's one of those things that's easier to pick up on your second time through a movie because you kind of know what's coming so you start to notice all the little details that are layered in and watching meek's cutoff this time around i was struck by just the fact that they had to make almost everything they had with them you know if something goes wrong they have to fix it the the whole first, gosh, I don't know, time kind of stands still when you watch this movie, so I don't actually know how long it lasts at the beginning, but it feels like an eternity of just watching them do things like ladle water using one bowl into a bucket, like from the river, and do it a lot. Or to just like fix things, or like, it takes a while to light a fire, it doesn't, it's not done easily. How do you need bread, like when you're in the middle of nowhere and you know you have to like have your breadboard with you and there's just all these little pieces that I think sometimes you know like prairie chic or any of these movements might kind of aestheticize this or even just the idea that we can like go out to the frontier and like make our own stuff and this is a major plot point I think in a lot of contemporary memoirs about people who like got tired of their Wall Street job and quit it and moved somewhere to live a simpler life. But this is the real authentic thing in Meek's Cutoff. And of course, it's repeated, um, I think, even more in First Cow, uh, partly because there aren't women to do the chores really at all in First Cow. And so the men are doing some of those kinds of intricate handmade labor that might have been more squarely placed with women at the time, but there just aren't any. So you see them, you know, making food and cleaning the house and, and struggling to carry things through the market and all of those kinds of things. It's just this very simple, gritty, gritty is the wrong word. It's, just, it's, but it's literally gritty, right? It's like dirty. And you just think about how much dirt got into stuff. All of that is a big factor in both of these movies. And I find that, super satisfying i love movies where we watch people do stuff that um that we usually skip over in a movie um this is like one of the things that appeals to me about sean dealman although that movie goes in a completely different direction is that we just <laughs> yeah. like we sit there watching her peel potatoes a lot like mm -hmm. for hours and there's something kind of mesmerizing about that but it's also i feel like almost affirming of the humanity of the characters is like, oh, yeah, like, that's what you do when you're a human. You spend a lot of time doing stuff that would never be in the film of your life. So I really like that. Um, while also recognizing that there's a real kind of there's a real beauty to what they're doing, even though I don't want to say that it's this kind of like thing with a halo around it. Right. It's not it wasn't fun. They weren't doing it because they wanted to be like crafty. Etsy people. They were doing it because this is what you had to do to stay alive. Um, there's a bit in Meek's Cutoff where they're 
all talking and all the women are sitting around knitting. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing um, I love to do. I know that's a thing that Genevieve uh, loves to do as well. And yet when I do it, I mean, I make things, but it's just this sort of like fun thing I learned to do uh-huh. because it was my choice. And it would be very different if you were on the frontier. Like, you're going to need that scarf because it's going to get real cold. <laughs> okay. I was about to say, I was about to say you're knitting scarves. <laughs> and you're doing it because you have to. You can't You can't yeah. do anything else about it. Um, and I love that she's kind of brought that into the films as part of the texture of the world, the slowness, the, the dirtiness, uh, the intricacy of that work. I also just kind of love a movie that makes you consider where literally everything comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, the big pan that Cookie makes the original biscuits in and then makes the clafouti in, like you can see that that's a, a sturdy, well-made cast iron pan that gets used for just about everything. And you're kind of invited to think like, what what will their lives be without that? You know, when they have to go on the run and leave everything behind, that's it's a real sacrifice. When the families in Meek's Cutoff have to go through everything they own and throw most of it away, you're you're kind of like, okay, you probably don't need your mom's grandmother clock uh, in, <laughs> on the frontier where you're going. But that's also something you're never going to replace. You're you're just never going to have that particular like this is a luxury that somebody cared about and somebody paid a lot of money for and was very important to somebody, and you're leaving it in the middle of a desert broken Mm -hmm. so just the importance of of small objects like the kind of excitement when cookie settles down to like okay here bat here's batch one of oily cakes you liked those batch two is going to have honey batch three (laughs) we can afford a grater and cinnamon and then you have to think about all right how did a cinnamon stick get out to the frontier like who transported it who brought a grater like a small hand grater all the way out there and then you get to think about him like going into the market like you know what i would really like right now is a cinnamon stick and a hand grater do you have those things because i've got a bunch of calorie shells on me right now just like Every item becomes important and significant. And given how much Hollywood is used to items being completely unimportant, just like, you know, I'm an intern uh, in an entry-level New York City publishing house. Of course, I've got a four-bedroom apartment of my own overlooking Central <laughs> Park, and my house is packed full of, like, expensive art and, uh, like, fancy knickknacks. Like, why wouldn't I? You know, it's just it's just set dressing. It's just meant to look pretty most of the time. Here, literally everything physical is important and is under question, is under interrogation at all times. Yeah, it made me think a little bit. I mean, this is not a good comparison, but it did make me think of the feeling when all the lockdowns occurred and people started growing scallions as if like scallions were a specific thing that you were definitely going to need and you weren't going to be able to get them. So we had to regrow them. Mm -hmm. Um, But also there was just like random things that I found myself buying because I realized that if I didn't have it, I would miss it and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get it. And that is in no way comparable to crossing the country in a covered wagon but there were definitely moments where i thought like should i buy this thing that does this you know i don't know an ice cream maker or something like that i was like no i'll probably be able to get ice cream when i want it (laughs) but the idea of like loading up on things and then tossing them out the back of the wagon the whole way across the country that suddenly felt very understandable to me i have to give a a mention to the gun loading and firing scene in Meek's cutoff, which yes. is which is like one of like 
you know, the film isn't full of big laughs, but that that's a great one. And it's another example of just like the labor it takes to do any damn thing in that, in that world. So it gives you the, you know, so it's both really kind of a funny spectacle to see how much effort it takes just to put in the gunpowder and to put, push it down. And then, to, you know, it, it, every shot takes an, a, like a full minute to, to fire off. You know, it just becomes like a sort of a, a comic point to what the film has been doing all along, emphasizing the heaviness of every step and the difficulty of every of, of every step and of living in that time and being those people and, and allowing you the, the, the time and the pace to feel it too because i think because i think a faster paced version of meek's cutoff may you might miss what she's trying to get at uh, what she's trying to really emphasize about the period which kind of brings us to uh something that keith wanted to talk about which is which is about the approach here to history i suppose to, to yeah this. well i i'm, I'm, I'm a little sidetracked in my mind about like what a faster paced version of meek's cutoff would look like it would probably <laughs> yeah. be about 20 minutes long right i mean you know well, just, just of, like first cow right I mean, first cow yeah. would have been 20 minutes if they if it had done a certain way yeah exactly but i, I yeah in terms of history i mean i mean uh we're choosing her only unless i'm forgetting something her only two period films right i still haven't seen river of grass i have to confess and i have not seen ode has anyone seen ode her second film no. Well, maybe it's ripe for rediscovery. But I mean, she is from Florida and she now makes her home in the Pacific Northwest and Oregon specifically, but uh, tends to set her films around there. And I think, you know, these show a, a you know keen interest uh, in how that area was formed and the history of it. But also they capture Oregon at a time when it wasn't Oregon, when it wasn't, uh, you know, the history was unwritten. I think I think there are two different tensions at work here. One is what we talked about, which is that, you know, what, what I brought up before was just like the idea is like these systems of civilization are kind of take over. You know, I mean, the people with money come in, they set things up. Uh, even with Meek's cutoff, you get a sense of that a whole new way of life is being brought to this territory, assuming they ever get there. But I think, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me to see these places when the rules haven't been set. And it's still a, a little up for grabs, at least, I mean, as to what it was turned into. And Meek's cutoff is specifically like, it's not even clear who's going to own Oregon, if it's going to be an American territory or British territory. I don't know enough of the history to know what it was during the earliest 1800s when, when uh, First Cow is set. Um, was it a British colony at that point? I mean, I mean, I'm showing my own ignorance here, but but more to the point, though, is is that it's certainly not the place that we know now. And and I, I one thing I enjoy about these films is is seeing the unsettledness of uh, this territory. There's an interesting little sort of script parallel between these two films, where King Lou talks about how they've gotten to the territory before history started. You know, they've they've managed to make it somewhere that history mm-hmm. hasn't been written yet. And that gives them a, like a little edge, like a little way in to maybe make their mark there. And in the final speech in Meek's cutoff, that Stephen Meek essentially says, like, we're, we're outside of history. Like, mm. what happens next hasn't been written yet. I, I don't know what happens. And it's a very similar thought. It's a very similar expression of the idea of like, we're kind of off the map here. It's 
especially interesting to me that in First Cow, to some degree, history has already been written for the viewers. You know, we start that movie with that image of those two skeletons side by side. And we don't know for a fact, uh, we don't even know for a fact at the end that it's Cookie and King Lou. We have to assume it is because yeah, we, of we the don't. way. <laughs> no, we, we really don't. We don't see King Lou die. They lie down next to each other. Scott, other people lie next to each other in the history of all mankind. (laughs) It's it's just as much of an ambiguous ending. Like you can imagine for yourself a an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge situation. It's not ambiguous. Where that's that's, somebody else. They die in that spot, and the person the person with the gun is gonna (laughs) shoot, gonna gonna kill them both, and that's we're gonna that's where we're gonna remain until they are discovered as skeletons of the future. Oh, Scott. Sometimes having an imagination is fun, especially when a filmmaker deliberately chooses to end a movie in an ambiguous way, which both of these movies are very ambiguous. I don't want to be pedantic, but to jump in here, uh, what Meek actually says, I looked it up, is as this was written long before we got here, which is kind of the opposite of what you were saying, Tasha. I, I thought there was another line in there where he specifically talks about the, the phenomenon of how history is written. Mm. I mean, he, he did seem to be implying the, sort of the the ending that we were suggesting where they're all going into a dream state or a dreamscape where it's the the reality of what's happening isn't very clear anymore and i think the reality of exactly what happens at the end of first cow is in the same way like no i'm not actually arguing that those two men get up go to san francisco start a life <laughs> no uh, but they build they, they a bakery live but... happily ever after and then some more people come across come come along and lie down next to each other no, like the... no that's not what happens but we don't know how it happens you know we don't know there's perfectly good reason to believe that cookie is dead long before the guy with the gun shows up like he is very clearly concussed and dying like exactly how it all goes down we don't know but they they're, but they're lying in the same position that they're found, but they're found. It's like Alyssa, help me you, out here. It's not ambiguous what happens Scott, to them. Scott, then. until until you see them die and the flesh run out, run off their bones, you do not know for sure. You don't know how it happens because she doesn't think it's important no, to know how it happens. It's like it's like montage. It's like you make meaning out of different images. It's like we see the person with the gun. We see them lie down in the spot. And then we can just, and then the movie ends, and we kind of can triangulate from the beginning what has occurred. Well, it does kind of make you wonder if they laid down to hide and just lay there forever and died, or if someone came over and shot them at point blank range and rearranged their bodies or something. I would touch it. I, I like that the, the there's a lot of ambiguity as to what actually actually happened. Mm-hmm. Although I, I do believe it's safe to draw the conclusion that we were looking at the skeletons from the beginning of the film. Yeah. I definitely agree with you. I, I think it is those two men. How it happens. It just She makes the decision that you don't need to see it. She makes the decision that you, Scott Tobias, are supposed to have enough imagination to let it play out in your mind in any of the various ways it might have happened. Well, you and, recognize the person who was hunting them, right? Like the person yeah, who got s- totally screwed out of the, the oily cake. <laughs> yeah, and, and the person who uh, Ewan Brenner's character kept putting down, who like he clearly has something to prove, um, mm. and the capable one who is stalking them. Like, yeah, it's it's pretty clear that he wants to be involved in that. But mm-hmm. let's as long as we're talking about ambiguity, can we just jump <laughs> back to the, the ruthless ambiguity of whether the claw is any good or not? <laughs> like they 
They freaking bring that thing in and show it off and disappear into the kitchen. And we never get to see the captain (laughs) eat it. We don't know if it's, if he is actually impressed. You know, the factor is like, I, I have to impress this man. And then you see the captain and you're like, yeah, he's, it doesn't matter what you do. He's not going to be impressed. His entire personality is built around not being impressed by people like you. He's bragging uh-huh. about the latest Parisian fashions. He's not going to be impressed because you threw together a clafoutis on the frontier. But man, you want to see them eat that thing. It looks delicious. Yeah, clafoutis is very good. It's like a puffy pancake kind of thing that you make with a lot of eggs and buttermilk and lots of sort of liquid ingredients and a very small amount of powdered ingredients, which I think must be why it worked well on the frontier, because you didn't need a lot of flour or whatever they were using for baking soda, probably some kind of vinegar deal. But it's delicious. Uh, so it, it seems like it would be a, a great thing to try and woo somebody with, I guess, or to like, if you've eaten it, then you have this impression of it in your memory that is great it was funny i i made one a couple weeks ago everyone on twitter was making them a couple weeks ago and so <laughs> so i did too and uh i noticed actually yesterday the new york times cooking posted recipe to blueberry clafouti in their instagram with no mention of first cow but i can't imagine it's not related in oh. some way but one thing it's, I do it's want the film that's sweeping the nation, you know. The, <laughs> it's our it's our best picture, uh, at least nominee. Um, mm-hmm. But in any case, I just did want to point out that it's really not a difficult thing to make at all. Um, I had an impression that it was going to be a lot harder to make from the movie, where the chief factor is much more amazed that Cookie knows how to make a clafouti than after I. I feel like an oily cake is a harder thing to make, but I also don't like deep frying, so. Yeah, it's, diff- the, it's, it's not it's not easy to do homemade, <laughs> right? Like, uh, yeah, I, I love fried foods, like deep fried foods, but uh, making that stuff at home is, uh, yeah. yeah, it's not the best. Dangerous. Yep. I just assumed those things were essentially donuts, and that's why people were going crazy for them. I mean, uh, they're effectively low sugar Krispy Kremes, mm-hmm. and yeah. people go driving across lanes of traffic when they see the uh, like- the fresh oily cake sign go up funnel cakes kind of it sort yeah. of has a funnel cake vibe which mm-hmm. i get it i've been to a state fair yeah <laughs> they look pretty amazing and people and of course there was oily cake fever it's like the two the film's two waves like it's theatrical run people were making oily cakes now people are making cloud flutes so but in the reality that we're in now uh first cow can be rented or purchased uh via the usual digital outlets uh, Meek's Cutoff is available on DVD and Blu-ray from Oscilloscope Pictures, and it can be streamed on Amazon Prime and rented elsewhere. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I recently decided to review this little movie for Polygon called Well-Groomed. It's a documentary by Rebecca Stern. And I picked it up just because the trailer kind of made me laugh. It's about the world of dog grooming in the category known as creative. Creative dog grooming, the subjects of the film just constantly refer to it as creative, as in, uh, oh, creative will eat up your life. Oh, a lot of people disapprove of creative. Like, it's a capital letter word that stands in for, like, explaining this entire world. Basically, in creative, you dye your dog's 
pelt in bright colors and uh, groom it like a topiary and turn it into a mosaic, maybe, or a character. Uh, If you just search the words creative dog grooming online, you will see dogs made out to look like uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or a dog with a a sweeping vista of racing horses along its side and the rest of it just like done in, in neons and, and jewel tones. Um, it's pretty ridiculous. It is literally using dogs as uh, as topiary. It is, as you might imagine, a very small, niche hobby uh, that does not <laughs> attract a huge number of people. But because it's a human hobby, there are competitions, um, there are shows, and there are basically side categories in bigger dog shows. So Rebecca Stern's doc, uh, Well-Groomed, focuses in on a series of these competitions and a group of women who are like running the circuit. They're dog owners. Um, most of them, maybe all of them, I wasn't entirely clear on that because they blur a little, are professional dog groomers. And this is just something they do on the side. Like it's, it's definitely not their main gig because at absolute best, you can maybe expect to win a couple thousand dollars here and there once every six months or so. Um, but they have, they go to dog shows to show their dogs in other categories, in grooming categories, in, in breeding categories and whatnot. And the film leaves almost all of that off screen. It's mostly just these women taking their ridiculously colorful dogs uh, to shows and talking about like what goes into their design, why they chose the hobby um, and why it's important to them. It's one of those films that's basically just, it's just this edge of feeling a little mocking. It feels a little bit like Christopher Guest's Best in Show, except that virtually everybody involved in this hobby is female. So it doesn't have the kind of the panoply of characters that Best in Show has, but it has that same level of kind of obsession. Everybody being profiled in the world of creative dog grooming is uh, a just a deep-seated, dyed-in-the-fur dog lover. And this movie, it's very small. It's very minor. It's not going to change the world. It doesn't dig particularly deep into this hobby or like do much to examine the, either the controversies about it, which there certainly are, or just the phenomenon of what seems to be a, a completely all-female uh, sidebar hobby that some people have made like an actual full-time professional job. What it does do is just show you insanely colorful dogs and people who love them. And there's a, a, an incredible amount of face licking. For those of you that are dog fans, uh, which I know at least two of you are big dog fans, this is just a really sweet, like low stakes, low key, good time, kind of digging into the details of a, a phenomenon that you may have occasionally seen like BuzzFeed picture fests about, but probably have not spent much time talking to anyone who actually does it. So I, yeah, it's it's not going to challenge you. It's not going to rock your world. And if you don't like dogs, or you think uh, dog grooming is in and of itself like exploitative or abusive, you're not going to like this film. If you could be fairly satisfied just like watching a gif of a very happy dog licking a very happy person's face for, for five minutes, this this movie was basically made for you. So it's called Well-Groomed. It's out on VOD. Uh, The weird phenomenon is 
HBO put up an edited 60 minute version of it back in December, I think as part of a, uh, like an anthology of uh, short docs. So if you have HBO now or HBO go or, or HBO, you can watch a 60 minute version of this exact same story on services you already have, but the full version of it is 88 minutes long and it's available for rental on, you know, Amazon and uh, Apple TV plus and the stuff like that. Just be aware that there are two different versions of it. You so there prefer, are. The longer cut is what you would recommend. <laughs> cut is just such a funny word for, uh, <laughs> for grooming. <laughs> film. grooming I'm, I'm I haven't seen the 60-minute version of it. I don't okay. know how it compares. Okay. But more dogs in the longer version. I, there's, there's or more shenanigans. The 88-minute version does have a couple of, like, kind of baggy sequences that could stand to be cut. It's possible that uh, the 60-minute version is just a much more efficient dog delivery device. <laughs> I don't know. Your mileage may vary, but I I went in expecting uh, nothing except funny people doing funny things with, uh, with animals. And mm-hmm. I just, I walked away with my spirits lifted for the first time in quite a while. <laughs> Uh, Scott, what about you? What's been good to you lately? Uh, well, I have been, it is basically been Scott Tobias month on the Criterion channel. Uh, there've been a lot of things on there, uh, Western noirs and, you know, old, uh, you know, the films by like the Ross brothers and like, like the, the, the basketball documentary that the Safdie brothers did a lot of stuff, a lot of things that are friendly to my interest, but nothing that is more exciting to me than, the films of Adam Agoyan, uh, uh, particularly a certain period of, of films from Adam Agoyan, because in the 90s, uh, he was like my favorite filmmaker, one of my favorites. He just had this incredible run of films um, from about, uh, you know, 87 through, say, 1999, from uh, Next of Kin, his first film, Family Viewing, all the way up through um, Felicia's Journey. And so it has most of those early films plus Adoration, which is actually one of his better later films. And a lot of the films where he he just kind of lost the handle, those aren't <laughs> included. So like the stuff that's on Criterion now, very much worth your time. But the first film that I ever saw of his, I mean, first of all, if you just want to just, if you've never seen an Egoyan film, you're like, what do I see? Maybe you, you would go and check out Exotica or The Sweet Hereafter first. That was That's kind of the biggest sort of one-two punch of his career. But my first encounter with him was the film Speaking Parts uh, from 1989. And, you know, at the, at the time, I felt like it was a film that was about the future um, or, or about the present, but about the future, too, about how our lives were now being mediated by screens and by our relationship with images and it was doing it in an extremely sophisticated and sort of puzzle box way um, that you would encounter later with you know exotica especially so this is kind of an early version of that and seeing it now like in quarantine i mean there's like zoom call type situations here and it's like this is 1989 that he made this Mm -hmm. thing i mean it's hard to describe the plot of it it's sort of set in this you know hotel which where, where there's some sex work happening but it's but it has more to do with the obsession of you know one individual with another individual and how those obsessions are fueled and also mediated by screens and um you know so it's kind of almost sort of a theme first movie but it's it's done you know it begins this collaboration that he had with Michael Dana the composer who who was who they just did extraordinary work together it's mesmerizing it's hypnotic you know it'll remind you a little bit of 
you know, his fellow Canadian, David Cronenberg in, in Videodrome. Highly recommended uh, that you just see as many of Ad- Adam McGoin's films as possible, but don't miss Speaking Parts because that was kind of the one that kind of got me going on him and thinking he was awesome. And then yeah, things kind of things kind of got a little bit hairy in the in the 21st century for Adam McGoin, but uh, I like it. Anybody else? Anybody other <laughs> have any Goyan thoughts, or am I moving forward? Yeah, well, I was waiting until you threw to me, but but yeah, I mean, that's that's a it's a really great selection of stuff. I, th- I and, and including the Adjuster, which is a film I was I think that was the one that hooked me, and mm. I don't think it's been particularly easy to see for a while. I'm not sure if I ever made it to DVD or Blu-ray. I got even. the DVD. Um, do you? Okay, well then you <laughs> yeah. you. But I, but I, I, I have wrong. the DVD for like speaking parts. Like I'm again big big fan. Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's draw, draw on the positive, but I, I, I really think he's someone who, and I say this without having caught the last couple, but I, I think he's could still get a, I think he could still surprise us. I think there's there's so, so much talent in Adam McGowan that uh, I wouldn't write him off yet. But certainly, he's a new, he has a new film, Keith, <laughs> right, Guest of Honor right. with uh, yeah. with David Thewlis. Did you see yeah. that one, Melissa? Guest of Honor. I did not. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I've not I, again with a lot of late Agoyan. I have not heard the best things, yeah. but the, the, I would have gone crazy if somebody ta- like if '90s Agoyan were making a film with David Thewlis, who might might have been hot off of something like Naked. It'd be like, whoa, this is going to be incredible. But now I haven't caught it yet, which is just unthinkable. Yeah, there's and, there's people you love that you kind of kind of fall off on it. It's kind of been yeah. that way with with me, and, and like I always feel like vaguely guilty for not seeing much of what Vim Vendors has done for the last two decades <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, yeah the, do- the 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 docs are pretty good for, with with yeah. them still. Uh, Keith, what about you? What what what's been good uh, for you this week? I, I got two quick recommendations. Uh, one one is that comes with a lot of caveats, but like my my wife and I um, often on weekends are looking for some pretty low impact viewing. So we watched this um, romantic comedy on Hulu called Plus One, co written and co directed by the team of Jeff Chan and Andrew Reimer, and it is a uh, rom com of the sort you may have seen before, involving two friends who eventually uh, realize they they're in love with one another uh, over the course of several weddings. But it is. Uh, very well played by stars Maya Erskine, who is one half of the uh, the team behind Pen15, and uh, Jack Quaid, uh, who's a, a charming uh, young actor of uh, some uh, impressive uh, genealogy. Uh, and they're really fun together. And I think up until about the halfway point, it, it, it is, um, you know, it takes a light-footed approach to some pretty familiar material. And then and slowly the air leaks out of it. But uh, but if you're looking for a rom-com with a fun cast, uh, you know, click on that. You'll, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll You'll like it well enough. It also it's also another film with a uh, uh, with a good music. Uh, this one a lot of a lot of songs by Real Estate a band uh, I enjoy. Um, I like and Real yeah, exactly. Uh, and on HBO Max they launched they have launched a new series of Looney Tunes cartoons simply called uh, Looney Tunes cartoons, um, <laughs> and that is. Often, you know, revivals of the Looney Tunes is often a reason to be uh, fearful uh, uh-huh. and uh, perhaps a little <laughs> planning to uh, avoid such a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I like this one. This is good. These are good. These are I haven't watched them all yet. Um, and there are I hit at least one dud. They are clearly lower budget efforts than your classic Looney Tunes, but they find often find ways around that. They're developed by Peter Brown, Brown Guard, who's known for the Cartoon Network show uh, Uncle Grandpa. 
And it's done with a lot of affection uh, for the material to the point where he basically, I believe, in a, I read an interview with him where he basically said his guiding impulse was to make Looney Tunes cartoons that kind of like what you would see if they never stopped making them back from the, you know, from the heyday on. Uh, and it's certainly that has been the spirit of the ones I have seen so far. I mean, some of the, you know, the references have been updated, but the uh, attitudes and the characters are very much like uh, the classic stuff. I would recommend uh, if you're looking for a place to start, there is one called Wet Cement, uh, which is uh, Porky Pig is uh, you know it is a very simple premise, and they kind of make the most of having a low budget because there's really only one uh, set. Porky Pig is is laying some cement. Daffy Duck, who's a little more uh, more <laughs> antic in in uh, this than, than his later incarnations, uh, is determined to upset this task and goes about it in various creative ways. And that is the entirety of the short. And uh, uh, that's the one you know I'd recommend that. One. One. you know it's it's uh, it's good stuff if you have hbo max and you have a few minutes uh, of time check it out especially especially if you like looney tunes cartoons and if you don't maybe watch something else <laughs> i also have not watched all of those um i've watched a handful of them and it is remarkable the pacing how how perfectly the pacing uh, of the jokes mimics those early 40s looney tunes like the characters are they're all animated like they were at the the very beginning of the the Looney Tunes story, like before they all developed uh, very firm models. They've got that, you know, Bugs kind of has the longer face. Daffy's a lot more plastic. Uh, everything, it just, it feels like a, a throwback. And the gags are just almost familiar. Like it really does feel like you're watching unearthed Looney Tunes. The only thing that I ran across, like the very first one I watched has Porky and Daffy exploring an Egyptian tomb. And at one point, Daffy gets bitten by a snake and presents the snake bite to Porky and is yelling, suck, 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 suck. And his speech impediment makes it sound like that's not what he's saying. And I was like, mm. that's the gag, huh? It's basically uh, just a repeated obscenity. Uh, okay, cool. I haven't run across anything else kind of that cheap and lowbrow. Uh, but I have been, I, there are a couple of uh, Roadrunner cartoons in there that feel so old school and so familiar. And Alyssa is nodding to all of this. Have, have you dug deeply into these, Alyssa? I haven't dug deeply into them, but they are the thing that we throw on at the end of the night, um, uh -huh. especially if we've been stuck watching a bunch of not so good stuff because I have to write about it or watch it for work for some reason. It's a perfect palate cleanser. And I was remembering all the reasons that I was not really allowed to watch Looney Tunes when I was a kid. <laughs> and it all had to do with, oh, they're so mean to each other. And there's all this violence. And I mean, yeah, but it is the, you know, obviously the definition of cartoon violence. And it's so satisfying to watch now. Yeah, there was a big kerfuffle because of an interview where uh, the showrunner said they took guns out of the equation. So Yosemite Sam doesn't have his, his six irons and uh, Elmer Fudd doesn't have a, a rifle. And uh, people reacted like people react in America whenever there's an implication that guns might not be uh. the awesomest and bestest things in the world. But I mean, these things are full of violence. They're full of dynamite violence and scythe violence and acme traps blowing up in your face violence. You know, there's, it's certainly not like a wussed down version of Looney Tunes. It's just a version of Looney Tunes where people don't point guns at each other. I'm excited. I've, I, we have our Friday 
family movie night and we always watch a Looney Tunes short beforehand as they as one does but I, I I'd been reluctant to even get into the new to the new ones I think there was like I think like the cover image is like you know Bugs Bunny holding like a cell phone it's just like I can't I can't with this this is not going to be good so it's good it's good to hear that that maybe it's worth getting into my kids actually have been they've been watching it on their own and they bring in like this is really good i'm like yeah your kids you know what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm sure you like you like you know god knows what all the garbage they've liked in the past i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna take their word for it but i'll take you all's (laughs) word for it you're grown-ups anyway Alyssa, what have you got for us so i have two movies that i have um watched recently both are from the early 90s. So my favorite theater here in New York when theaters are open is um, Metrograph, which is on the Lower East Side. And they just launched a streaming service and they they distribute and own the rights to a bunch of movies. So it's mainly populated by like relatively obscure stuff that you can't get anywhere else. I was very excited to see this and I subscribed immediately. And the first movie I watched was Feed uh, from 1992. And so this is a movie that's basically, it's a, they call it a, a political documentary comedy. And it's basically a sort of a supercut of B-roll from the 92 presidential campaigns. It has Bill Clinton and Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan and Jerry Brown and Hillary Clinton. It's sort of them meeting the voters, having these interactions with them, and also just like the funny things that happen that don't always make the news, especially, you know, the things that maybe would pop up on Twitter today or whatever, because somebody in the audience had their camera phone out. But, you know, that wasn't the same, obviously, in 92. And so it's a lot of that kind of thing. It is very, very funny and a little, you know, it's a little bit of like, oh, this is our origin story in some ways for a lot of things that are going on now. It's also (laughs) interspersed with... George H.W. Bush uh, talking like sort of between takes of saying something from the Oval Office and he's like cracking jokes and saying like kind of inappropriate things at times and that's really funny. It's it's a 72 minute movie. It's all people who are recognizable still now. I just really enjoyed watching it. I, I think the the political comedy documentary genre can be really delightful and Americans have been really good at making it for a really long time. So yeah, so that one I think as far as I know is only available on Metrograph's site and possibly if you're a Netflix DVD person, you can watch it there. And so I watched that, um, but I would like to pair it with a movie that it rhymes with, which is the (laughs) 1994 classic epic Speed, um, Uh which is the one where they're on a bus and they can't slow down the bus because if they do it'll explode and there's more (laughs) to it than that but i knew this movie existed and i had just never gotten around to it it has keanu reeves kind of at his like most sort of like handsome young movie star ish i think um he's the he's the young cop who has to save this bus full of innocent people that is being piloted by sandra bullock because she's just sort of was there on the bus and she said she could drive it and so she is they're they're speeding down los angeles highways they have to jump from one bit of an unfinished highway to another 
uh, which was quite a stunt. I watched the behind the scenes and they, you know, had to do this practically. And so they did, they jumped a bus and they were <laughs> actually the, the behind the scenes clip is very much like a little more tense than the actual scene in the movie because <laughs> it's like real people. And they're all like, if something goes wrong, here's how you jump out of the bus. <laughs> and it's just like, ah! um, so anyhow, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. And I think what I enjoyed most about it was sitting there and thinking about the pitch meeting for the movie and just thinking like, it's one of those movies that clearly was pitched as, you know what people like is when cars go really fast. What if we had the car be really, really big, like a bus, and it has to keep going fast the whole movie. But I will say when I started watching it, um, the first scene is in an elevator shaft. Um, and people get trapped on an elevator and and about five minutes in I thought oh I thought this was the bus movie and I turned <laughs> and I said to my husband no this isn't the movie I thought it was and he was like J just wait just wait a minute um, yeah yeah it's great it's also one of those movies that I feel like is very classic of action blockbusters from the 90s where like almost everybody dies in this movie and it's like they save the people on the bus but in the process of saving the people on the bus the bus has to like plow through like uh -huh. los angeles traffic a lot of people died in the saving of this very small number of people on this bus um including including jeff daniels so in any case i think it's a movie everyone saw before i did um i was 11 in 1994 <laughs> but uh oh but it was delightful nonetheless and in a summer without really any blockbusters i think it's a really fun one to uh to rewatch. It was also one of those movies where it's like before it's like, who's Sandra Bullock? And then after it's like, oh, Sandra Bullock, the America's biggest movie star. Yes. <laughs> it's kinda, it just kind of happened with that one. Yes. Yeah, it's a good villain, good villain too, and Dennis, and Dennis Hopper. And, Great uh, villain. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a good one. I was uh, I was in college when it came out. I was <laughs> Sorry. About to leave. I was about to leave. It was in my final year of college. Um, and, uh, and and so I was, I was an audience for it. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's a funny point though about just all of the lives that are lost to save a few. <laughs> I think Bad Boys Two is like that too. They're just like mowing down a neighborhood. It's like God, there's a lot of people in that space. Like that is just we're not even thinking about them, and they're just getting mauled here. <laughs> uh, you really, I, I mean, it would be a kind of a a tough but probably necessary decision to make at a certain point. Be like, okay, in order to survive. You know, we're going to be we should maybe think about sacrificing ourselves here because, you know, we're driving through Los Angeles at top speed and, and traffic is stopped. And so how's that going to yeah, work? Maybe, maybe this is some sort of philosophical problem involving uh, transportation. It's the speeding. It's a 55 miles per hour bus problem, I believe, is what it's traditionally called. Do you think that was the pitch? They were like, we want to make a movie about the trolley problem. And they were like, well, it's got to be really loud. <laughs> and really big. Like, trolleys, are, trolleys aren't big and loud trolleys enough. Are What's bummers. bigger and louder than a trolley? I, I think so, that's exactly what happened. So, Alyssa, you have to be excited then to see the sequel to the film, right? To, to follow it up and, and try to see if they can capture the magic again in the sequel? <laughs> well, um, I hadn't thought about that. But I, I'm sure I will at some point. Every time I see a movie like this, you know, this is the sort of thing I would have normally said, you know what, some repertory house is going to run this and it's going to be so much more fun to watch with a crowd than at yeah. home. And I've kind of had to abandon that. Um, but, you know, when a rep house runs these, hopefully somebody will 
we'll just do a whole series of these once we have movie theaters again. And, uh, yeah. and I will definitely go for it. Yeah. Yeah, as much fun as it is to revisit speed and uh, just the, the delightful shamelessness of it's a bus that can't go slower. It'll <laughs> explode. I like I don't want to sleep on your first recommendation. Feed, <laughs> feed. feed is just in a way like such an artifact of its time because mm-hmm. it was it was so much about that technological moment between everybody knows everything's being filmed all the time and you have to be careful in public and politicians presenting themselves on uh, TV is more important than ever, but the cameras are always rolling and they didn't realize it. So you get to see people like politicians farting and picking their nose Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, saying like immature or dumb things. And it's just to, to some degree, as you were talking, I was like, why haven't we basically had another one of those every year since that one? There's got to be the footage. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Now it's all captured on on cell phones. And the fact that people behave differently off camera isn't as much of a surprise. But man, when that thing first came out, it just felt like such a revelation. Mm-hmm. And the gag of like, here's Ross Perot doing something obnoxious and here's George W. Bush doing something infantile. And then they cut to Bill Clinton and he's just immaculately perfect uh, and completely camera ready even before the cameras are rolling. It's it's such a just a hilarious commentary on the artificiality of uh, like campaigning for political office and what it means to be completely suited for that artificiality. Yeah. I really kind of dig feed. Yeah, yeah. And having to kind of lurch, you know, it's not that many decades after TV finally became a factor in elections with the Kennedy Nixon debates. But even I remember the film, the Reagan show, which I really liked a few years ago, which captured all this b-roll because reagan always had cameras rolling around the white house just he captured more footage i think than the five presidents before him combined and it's the same thing you know you start to see how the presidency was shaped to be tv ready and it does feel like a period of time because now they have to play to a whole different whole different world and the feedback loop between tv and uh the presidency is so different i think even than anyone would have anticipated back then yeah, it's just and it's funny. It's it's a very very funny movie. Yeah, and a good opportunity to support Metrograph and yes. a good and uh, and we we're always kind of looking for chances to support, you know, these independent theaters and independent distributors that are struggling right now um and are not open um and not doing business in the normal way. If you're a cinephile, you want these places and these distributors to exist when when this long national nightmare is finally over and that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will come out august 18th and august 25th keith what's coming up next the new documentary boy state was one of the biggest hits of this year's sundance film festival breaking the record for the most money ever spent on the rights to distribute a documentary Every year, the American Legion welcomes teenagers to various state capitals for boys or girls state camps, where the campers are divided into two rival parties and work to build a mock government with elections to determine various leadership roles within the parties and over the camp as a whole. Boy State focuses on the boys in Texas and the alternately cynical and inspiring ways certain kids form coalitions and express their political beliefs. The chaos of forming a government from scratch, along with the all-male environment, reminded us of the William Golding novel The Lord of the Flies and the 1963 adaptation by British director Peter Brook. 
For our next pairing, we'll break down the tribal instincts of the kids in Boy State and the 1963 version of The Lord of the Flies and see how good we feel about a world where they run everything. If you want to play along at home, Boy State will debut on Apple Plus on August 14th, and The Lord of the Flies is on the Criterion channel. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Meek's Cutoff, First Cow, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Uh, Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Natasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find my work and things I curate there. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? I'm a freelance writer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. You can find my work at places like The Ringer, Mel Magazine, uh, Vulture, um, TV Guide, Rolling Stone, and so on and so on. Uh, Alyssa, how about you? I'm the film critic, and I cover film, which is an ever-changing topic right now, at Vox.com, uh, Vox with a V. And I'm on Twitter at Alyssa Marie, and I also am half of a newish podcast called Young Adult Movie Ministry. It is a cheeky title for a podcast about Christianity and the movies. So you can find us at youngadultmovieministry.com. Yam. Yam, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, is that a clever acronym? Kind of. Um, (laughs) Well, you can find uh, me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in the New York Times, in Vulture, uh, The Ringer, and other fine publications. Um, You can find uh, Genevieve Kosky, our our, our producer and frequent uh, co-host, on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky. She is the deputy TV editor for Vulture. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>